Let us pray. <clears throat> Gracious and loving God, fill us with your Holy Spirit so that we will have the strength we need to face the challenges in our lives. Amen. We most likely remember where we were and what we were doing during the events of great significance in our nation and in our lives. Those of us of a certain age remember November 1963 when John F. Kennedy was assassinated. And we remember that barely five years later, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. was assassinated. And a couple of months after that, Bobby Kennedy was assassinated. All of these events are etched in our memories. June 12, 2016 is one of those dates that has been etched in my memory. I was leading the 25th and final HIV AIDS retreat for Providence 4 at the Canoga Conference Center. Those who had attended the retreat over its 25 year history represented a spectrum of common characteristics. They were somehow impacted by HIV, they represented a minority sexual orientation or gender identity. They were part of a racial minority. They were people of color. We were in the middle of the Sunday morning Eucharist that would close out the retreat. And the date is etched in my memory because one of the acolytes showed me a message on his cell phone just minutes before I stepped into the pulpit to deliver the sermon. The message read, there had been a mass murder at the Pulse nightclub in Orlando, Florida as many as 50 people had been killed. How I began the sermon suddenly changed. The Pulse was a gay nightclub. At the time of the massacre, many patrons were Latino, Latina, because it was an event specifically designed for the Latin community. The victims were targeted. This was a hate crime, whether based on sexual orientation or ethnicity, or in some cases, both. At the time, it was the largest mass murder in our nation's history, and probably remains so among hate crimes. It followed after the murders at Mother Emanuel Church in Charleston, South Carolina, and became a part of a disturbing trend and pattern in our nation's history, where people are targeted for violence and death just because of who they are. It is an ironic juxtaposition that June 12th is also the day that the life and ministry of Anagabo is honored by the Episcopal Church. He was a member of the Ojibwe tribe and one of the indigenous peoples of this land. He's recognized as the first indigenous person to be ordained a priest in the Episcopal Church. Now our sordid history of the treatment of indigenous Americans is another sermon entirely. Imagabo was a person of color. The majority of those killed at the Pulse nightclub were people of color. These two are forever linked by the accident of a date on the calendar. In the Gospel of Luke, Jesus tells the crowd, blessed are you, and he proceeds to name the reasons that they are blessed. I, have, I feel some discomfort upon hearing some of these things. Blessed are you when people hate you, and when they exclude you, and when they revile you, and defame you on account of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy. For surely your reward is in heaven. For that is what the ancestors did to, their, to the prophets. I, have, I admit I have mixed reaction to this particular passage about being hated and excluded. 
reviled and defamed because I have been by both gay and straight folks just because I'm gay, just because I'm Christian. Similarly, gay people have questioned my sanity for being part of organized religion. I understand their concern. I've asked myself similar questions. Is it sane to have to engage in a battle to be part of a faith community? Recently, well-known conservative Christian leaders have even gone so far as to question whether a candidate for president, who happens to be gay, is really a Christian. Hatred, exclusion, revulsion, and defamation are just part of the territory for many of us. My reaction is really mixed to the part about rejoicing in that hatred, exclusion, revulsion, and defamation because my reward will be in heaven. Seriously? Put up with all the junk thrown at us now just so we can be rewarded after we are dead. Clearly, there's more to it than that, and we all know that. But sadly, it is this very thinking that has been used over the history of the church to justify the multitude of ways we have found to, dis to despise, treat, marginalize people so badly. Even in some of the hymns we sing, the authors seem always to be looking for something good in the afterlife. What's wrong with seeking better here on earth? Christianity has a history of mistreating people and then using passages such as this gospel and others to cover that mistreatment. The treatment, mistreatment with the promise of something better later. Like many things, folks can justify whatever they want to using scripture, but they have to usually take it out of context or misinterpret what it says. Three years ago today, someone hated and defiled and defamed a group of people just because of who they were. 49 of them were murdered. It was surreal to me then, and it remains surreal to me now. The aftermath of that event and its impact on our current reality is evident during the gay pride parades each year that have happened since that massacre. Police officers and garbage trucks filled with sand block every intersection along Peachtree Street where the parade will pass. The barriers are there to prevent someone from ramming the parade with a vehicle, causing injury and death in the process. Those big, ugly trucks are a sobering reminder of hatred, exclusion, revulsion, and defamation. We live in an era where extreme, extreme expressions of hatred exclusion, revulsion, and defamation. For others, it, it is more common right now than I think at any point in my life. It is open. It is more visible than I think it has ever been. Tacit support comes from politicians all over the country, even from opposite ends of Pennsylvania Avenue in Washington, D.C. Despite the gospel, maybe even because of the gospel, I cannot be silent about reviling, denigrating, hating, or excluding other children of God because of their sexual orientation, their gender, their gender identity or expression, their immigration status, etc., etc., any more than I can be silent about the blatant racism we're also seeing. We learned over three decades ago that silence equals death. 
Evil triumphs when good people keep silent and do nothing. At the National Lynching Memorial in Montgomery, Alabama, the impact of evil is represented by large casket-shaped pieces of metal that stand on the floor or hang from the ceiling. They display the names of those African Americans who were lynched in some 800 counties across the nation. Some contain double columns of names. Fulton County, where we are right now, is one of those. Others contain only a few names. These were documented cases. From what I know about some of those counties, there are names that should be there that are not. In the nearby lynching museum, there's graphic evidence that white people who claim to be Christians justified and participated in those lynchings. Politicians claimed either innocence or inability to stop such events, even when they were printed in the daily newspaper the day before the lynching was to take place. I wonder if those who were so hated and defamed and reviled have received their reward in heaven. I pray they have somehow been rewarded for enduring what we did to them. Yes, we receive the promise of better in the hereafter, but I see nothing in the gospel, this gospel, or any other teachings of Jesus that discourages or prevents us from doing something right now in our own day to end hatred, exclusion, revulsion, and defamation of other children of God, regardless of the reason. And regardless of in whose name those things take place. Now, some might opine or even complain that I'm inserting politics into my sermon. Well, I blame that thinking on the church. Our church has lost its prophetic edge, that edge which understands the difference in personal and political. Lost that edge of speaking truth to political power. Racism, homophobia, sexism, misogyny, and the like may have a political aspect to them, but before anyone dubbed them as political, they were first personal. The lynching of a black or brown person is very personal to the victim and the victim's family and friends. Homophobic slurs, discriminatory treatment of queer people is very personal to the victim and the victim's loved ones. When I get called a faggot, it's personal. It's not political. Perverted politics and politicians may be behind such slurs, but the bottom line is that I am personally the target of the slur, as is anyone else who receives such a slur. The murders of transgender persons are personal to the victims and their loved ones and all who care about them. Yet the politics that seek to prohibit transgender folk from serving in the military does not prevent the outcome of the political from being very personal. The list goes on and on, and we can seek to blame politics for how we mistreat each other, but the act of mistreating each other is a personal act on our part. Yet the church does not call out the sins of racism, homophobia, transphobia, sexism, etc., as loudly as she should for fear of being labeled too political. We look back, the church has not moved with any deliberate speed as we observed the inclusion of people of color, women, and those of different sexual orientations in the full life of the church. It's been a slow process. 
We've been Christ's body for some 2,000 years. Yet it has only been in the last 100 years or so that we made any effort to embrace the entire spectrum of God's creation. Have we become too established? Are we that afraid to speak truth? Truth to power, truth to those who don't want to hear it. Who is it, my kindred, that we claim to follow? Is it not Jesus Christ? Political attitudes of others got him nailed to that cross 2,000 years ago. The earthly ministry of Jesus was centered around how we relate to God and how we treat each other as God's children. His execution was personal. However, we choose to label things, it is for following the steps of Jesus that we risk being hated, excluded, reviled, and defamed. Are we willing to put the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ to work in ending revulsion and defamation, even when those acts are done in his name? Are we willing to do that right now, in this place, on this day, in our nation? Or will we duck the issue in favor of a reward in the hereafter? Will that reward be worth the cost of what we allow to be done to others, to be done to us? How many lynchings must take place before we act? How many more Pulse nightclub murder massacres must we endure? How many more Mother Emanuel church murders must occur? Are we honoring the memory of those victims? Blessed are you when, when we put the message of the gospel into action on behalf of the marginalized and hated, despised and defamed. If we do not act, what prevents Jesus' message from being just words on paper that will pass through our brains every few years as we go through the cycle of readings? Is that really expressing the faith we profess? Is that what Jesus taught us to do? Amen. I